If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Parenting may be less about raising our children and more about raising ourselves. It compels us to break our own cycles of shame and pain as we bring healing to the wounds of our own childhood. Cindy Wong Brandt. Hey guys, welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We are super excited to have Cindy here with us today. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us. For those of you who don't know, most of you, I'm sure, very much do, but Cindy is the author of Parenting Forward, and you host your own podcast, and you have a conference too as well. That's right. Cindy's just really passionate about helping parents raise children with healthy spirituality, Mm -hmm. and that's just kind of what we're all about too. So thanks so much for being on, Cindy. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. This is such a huge need. And I have been talking about these things for a long time. So it's really exciting to see people step in and join the conversation. Um, Yeah, I'm excited for what we're going to talk about. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We are so glad you're here. And I consider you, Cindy, the parenting and deconstructing guru, because you've been doing this for a while. And so many of our listeners, including us, are just beginning to step into this space and don't know where to start, Mm -hmm. what to change or how to do this well. We were even talking about like before we popped on the podcast here, how before I was even a parent, I was reading your book, Parenting Forward, and it just started me thinking about some of these things Mm -hmm. before I even had kids. It's really important to me that when we talk about parenting, that it's not just parents who participate in the conversation, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I think I heard a quote or a meme somewhere that says we're all parents to society's children. And Mm -hmm. so I say, you know, anyone who cares about justice, who cares about the well-being of our societies we all have to care about the children because the children are, they, well, first of all, they're human beings and we should care about human beings. So we believe in human rights, but also the way that we treat children is so critical to the way societies are formed because what they're learning, the patterns that they're establishing, the way their brains are forming contributes so much to the overall health of societies. So really it's a task for everybody. And parents have a special role, of course, but parents also need so much support. I mean, some of the biggest problem is that parents do not get enough support. And so they feel really oppressed because there's so much demanded of them. And so, yeah, I'm always pushing for everybody. And also it seems like this is a very women centered space and it shouldn't be because Mm. what's a woman centered space because of sexism, right? Because women bear the burden of child caring and that's, that's just not, that's not right. And we need to reverse that. 
And so, yeah, I'm always just trying to get as many people into this conversation as I can. Thank you for saying that. That is such an important point to make on every single level. Right. I couldn't agree with you more. And even though my kids are grownish, I still feel passionately about other people's kids. Everyone is someone else's child. And it kind of goes to your point about building a better world. Well, when we when you build a better world for other people's children, it actually helps your children. So mm-hmm. you can be completely selfish and say, I just want what's best for my children. And that is caring for all the other children. And another thing is, it doesn't matter if there's lots of people who, for very good reasons, choose never to have children. And actually, I'm a mm-hmm. huge advocate for that because we have to have that choice. If we don't have that choice, then nobody really consents to becoming a parent. It's just social pressure. Right. And so people who don't choose to have children, they also are part of this conversation because, well, like I said before, they, they can be a source of support for families, but also because we are reparenting ourselves, like the yes. quote that you read of mine. And I think that when we heal our inner child, the way that we were raised and, and kind of become conscious of the ways that we may have been traumatized or hurt or treated less than, you know, with just, just the way we are, then that is so transformative for just individual well-being and again, for the collective. I love that you're talking about just parenting the inner child and healing kind of our own trauma. Can you just talk a little bit more about that for people who might be new to that concept or that idea? Yeah, I think a lot of times because we are just who we are and we learn what we learn, everything becomes normalized and we don't become aware of the ways that we are treated and the ways that we treat people. And we just kind of settle in with our little dysfunctions. And a lot of times when we become parents, our children begin to trigger some of those issues because they maybe disobey. And then you find yourself screaming at them for disobeying. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I am my mother. These words that are coming out of my mouth is exactly the way that I'm parenting the way I was parented. And you're starting to become uncomfortable with it because the world is changing and progressing and you're learning about new ways of treating people. And so when those moments happen, then I think we are then reminded, oh, there is, a, there is that child inside of us that was not gentle parented, was not parented with justice. And if I don't, I mean, what I'm learning about through the work that I've been doing is that if I don't heal that child, it doesn't matter how good of my intentions, it's going to come through in my own parenting and I'm going to harm my children the way I was harmed. And so if I don't want to harm my children the way I was harmed, I have to try to do the very, very hard work of resolving my trauma and to heal my own wounds. And that's really the biggest job, I think, for parents. And so I say in my book that parenting is not done in the direction of children, it's done in the direction of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not about being selfish. You know, I think we think, oh, parenting should be all about giving, giving, giving to the children. But what I'm learning is that no, give to yourself, invest in your own well-being. And that's going to be the biggest gift that you give to your kids. I keep thinking about Richard Rohr's quote, those who don't transform their pain, Mm -hmm. transmit it. So good. I've led so many groups of moms and it strikes me that people always want to talk about how to fix their kids. And I've had to put boundaries around the discussions where we spend our time leaning into the places that need fixing in us. 
because we can only give away what we possess ourselves. Like if we don't have a $20 bill, we're not giving that to anybody else. And if we don't have healing or freedom inside of us, we can't give that to our kids. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we will most always give away what we have inside ourselves. Right. Whether that's pain and shame or love and goodness. Yeah. Well, we can't control other people. I think this is general good life advice. We can't control other people. <laughs> what we can control is ourselves. Right. And so that is, that's one thing that we should really focus on doing. <laughs> oh, that's so powerful. Thanks for that reminder. It sounds like you've done so much of your own deconstruction and reconstruction. So what started you on this journey to do all of your own inner work? Was there something pivotal you can point to, or do you have a whole different story to tell us? Oh, people always ask me this question. I, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people in deconstruction, they, they want to, I think they're curious about the turning points because it makes a good story, right? It's like, it's the good testimony. We're addicted to good testimonies. Yeah. And I guess just like I never had a good testimony when I was an evangelical, I don't have a great testimony of the way I deconstructed either <laughs> because it's so gradual. Mm-hmm. I grew up actually a religious. Uh, my parents didn't ascribe to any religion, but I had a very serious case of death anxiety. Like I thought about death from as long as I can remember, maybe three years old. And so you can imagine an a religious kid with severe case and anxiety when they meet the evangelicals. <laughs> I kind of fell pretty <laughs> fast and hard because all of a sudden there was this answer to my death anxiety. I get to go to heaven right. if I just accept Jesus into my heart. And so, yes, in my adolescence, I was very much a hardcore, sold out for Jesus, radical evangelical. I became a missionary which was is radical. It, it was and is. <laughs> it's funny in my deconstructed state now, I look back and I'm like, what, what was I thinking? You know, I did a lot of hard things for the Lord, let's just say that. And so I, I just think that as I began to encounter the world, as I began to encounter experiences in my life that just didn't match what I was taught I slowly began to deconstruct. And I mean, there were periods of my life that was accelerated. So for example, when my brother came out as trans, that really made it stark that I needed to deconstruct. Otherwise I was going to either lose my brother or lose, I was, you know, like it was a turning point, right? And had to make those choices. But, you know, I always quote Pete, your dad's quote for deconstruction. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I quote it everywhere. He says that deconstruction is the inevitable surfacing of the truth amidst broken versions of it. Mm -hmm. So that's my favorite definition of deconstruction. And so I think if you go off of that definition, I've always been deconstructing and I think I always will. I'm sorry if I don't have this grand story of I saw the light and turn towards goodness. <laughs> no, I love that. I think it's, it's a slowly mining of the truth amidst broken versions of it. And so it, it was in so many areas, you know, it was, I'm a woman and I'm Asian, right? So racism and sexism, like those things were just so, it, it just didn't take long moving about the world in the body that I'm in before I realized there were some serious discrepancies between the theology that I was given and the human experience I was having in life. So deconstruction was inevitable. 
I think you touched on a really great point because I feel like even in just some of the conversations that Esther and I have been having, there may have been a specific instance that propelled deconstruction. But when you really sit down and think about it, it's like, oh, well, when I was four, I was having all of these questions and I was wondering all of these things and this didn't make sense. And I actually don't think I believed any of that stuff, but I was just in the midst of that world, right? So I think this idea that deconstruction is ongoing and if we really look back it really is faith ultimately right Mm -hmm. whether we recognize it as that or not it's just a part of our faith journey Mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful and and empowering as well that this is a process Yes, yes. And some people get discouraged that, oh, why am I not over this yet? Well, I think it's better to accept that we'll never be over it and that it is part of this process of evolving. I really love that you brought up this four-year-old thing because I think we have this idea that children are born pure and innocent and blameless, and then we somehow become corrupted by the broken versions of the world are given to us. And then we hit this point in adulthood where we decide to deconstruct it. And I actually don't think that that's the way it works because I think that children are deconstructing, (laughs) right? They are constantly learning new information and then like testing out theories of what works and what doesn't work and then choosing for themselves which path that they want to take. And they do this constantly. And and if anything, kids are even more, they're doing that work even more intensely because their brains are really plastic at that time. So like your first seven years of your life, your brains are very plastic and, and you're forming neurons and firing these connections all the time. And so I think if anything, deconstruction is most active in those first seven years of life. So yeah, that's, That's really interesting. I think that we are always deconstructing. And I think if we just embrace it now, I don't want to invalidate people who are really suffering because I suffered in the height of my deconstruction years. I was suffering because I was very disoriented. I was losing community. I was losing ideologies that held me up. I was losing security and certainty and comfort. And so This is not to say that people who are going through that, you're not always going to be stuck in that space. It does get better as you find community and resources for yourself. But yes, I think the work of deconstructing, the work of evolving, learning new things, discovering the truth and its broken versions of it, that work has always been and and always will. And it, it can be a beautiful thing if we can frame it and accept it as such. When Esther and I started talking through this podcast and this idea behind it, one of the main things that we kept coming back to is we have friends who are suffering through deconstruction because everything that they have learned their entire lives, it hits this point where it doesn't make sense to them anymore or they can no longer pretend like they don't have questions and everything unravels. And for some of them, that's mental health crises, that's crises within their marriage. It can be very, very traumatic and it can be very, very scary. And so so I do like what you said about that. And, you know, Mm. I mean, I'm, you know, my dad is... My husband likes to call him like Christian bad boy because someone called him that in like some review somewhere and my husband thinks it's (laughs) hilarious. But even my dad, who's deconstruction king in some ways, right? And reconstruction king. I still have days where I wake up and 
I feel disoriented or I have to remind yeah. myself, wait a second, like you don't actually believe that anymore. That was some, what somebody told you to believe or that was a mm. construct that you came from. And so, yes, like you said, it's this constant evolving and learning and isn't that what faith is? But when you first step into a place where someone or something is allowing you to not have answers, it feels really, really scary. It is scary. Well, and the problem is that our bodies take time to catch up with our intellect. So I think it's very common for people to deconstruct up here in your brain cognitively, but our bodies are still, so for example, people may deconstruct the idea of hell. So they're, they're like, I don't believe that God would do this to people, torture people for all eternity, but they still feel scared. They still feel fear and they still make decisions and respond out of that fear. And then it's even more disorienting because now you're disagreeing with yourself, right? <laughs> it's like, why am I not behaving the way that I want to behave. And so that's another layer of suffering. But I feel like it's almost always true. Our bodies take longer to catch up. And I think that's what's kind of hard in this age of social media, because we get so much information. So our minds can maybe change faster and almost have to, we almost have to, to catch up with the pace of online discourse. But the problem is our bodies just are not wired to respond that quickly. And so that that lag can just be a source of great tension for many people. Yeah, I know the process for me has felt so disintegrating. Mm. And I loved what you're bringing up about how it takes a while for our bodies to catch up with our brains. Oh my goodness, that's so helpful. I know I've had to take the long view on all of this and give myself a boatload of grace during the journey. Mm -hmm. And trust that at some point the integration is going to happen, but it's going to take some time. So that helps me to take a big, long soul breath while I wait. (laughs) Thank you. So Cindy, you've talked to parents all over the world in this space. Yeah. What would you say you have found is a common thread for parents who are trying to navigate the world of deconstructing Mm -hmm. and parenting at the same time? The biggest FAQ I get is your relationship with your parents. So people struggle with holding boundaries with their family as they're trying to break cycles for their own children's well-being. And that makes so much sense because it's like what I said, when our children trigger us and we hear our mother's words come out of our mouth, that's kind of a wake up moment of like, oh, I'm perpetuating this harm. Well, this then directly relates to the way we, if our parents are still living, then we are actually having this contentious struggle with them and telling them that the ways that they did things is something that we want to change. And that can be very hard. For some people, it leads to a very hard break. They have to cut them off because they're like, I can't do this thing of breaking this toxic cycle when you're still in my life disrupting that work. But for most people, I would say they want to maintain a good relationship with their parents because they want their kids to have that continuity. They want their kids to be situated in this legacy of their family history. And they want their kids to have grandparents who love and support them the way they should be. I find that that's the biggest struggle. Um, And I think our family relationships is just like, it's just the hardest relationship (laughs) to deal with, right? Like I think with friends and and even with spouses, you can divorce a spouse, but you can't 
really divorce a parent, like they're still your parent, even if you cut them off. And also, I don't know that you should try to cut them off because the way they parented you becomes such a big part of who you are. If you cut them off, you're cutting yourself off. Yeah, by far, I would say that that's the biggest problem, people. How are they shifting in their understanding of themselves as they're deconstructing? How are they reorienting their relationship with their children and with their parents at the same time and maybe extended relatives and siblings, maybe to a little lesser extent, but that's still an issue. And, and I, I don't know, I keep trying to respond to people's concerns, but it continues to be a problem because I, it's maybe a little above my pay grade, right? I think people need family systems therapists to help them <laughs> through every individual story. There's a Chinese proverb that says every family has a hard to read scripture. <laughs> and I think that's very true. Just means that our stories are all complicated. A lot of what I've learned is, you know, I think those of us who grew up evangelical really struggle with holding boundaries because we were raised to very much not have boundaries. Not having boundaries was encouraged. So think small group sharing time. Like that was just an oversharing hot mess. And we were encouraged to do that. Like that, that shit was good, right? And so we just didn't know. Also, we were also taught we didn't know what we wanted, that our, we're sinful and our desires are bad and all this stuff. And so how are you supposed to draw boundaries when you can't even trust yourself to know what's good for you? And then when you do determine what you think is good for you, then you are taught to diminish yourself and to be quiet. And so we just were not equipped to be good boundary drawers. And so I think a lot of the work we've been doing in the work that I do is learning how to draw those boundaries to begin with. And that's really a messy process as well. I think people draw boundaries and feel like, oh, that was too hard. <laughs> or, or you just, the boundaries are so high, now you're disconnected from everyone in your life. And so I think we have to have grace as we learn to do this hard thing of like drawing boundaries. Boundaries are so key to healthy parenting and just healthy living. Like knowing when to open ourselves up and when to close ourselves off. And that includes our kids. Mm -hmm. And it makes so much sense when we dive into the family of origin systems. It goes back to what you, Liz, were saying about your four-year-old self. Like when you're, there were no boundaries and we find ourselves thrust into that place again suddenly when we're with our families. I have found that when we feel those feelings and have those triggers, we probably need to go back to that four-year-old self right. and ask, where's this coming from? What wounds are popping mm. up? Where were our boundaries violated at that time? And then when we've gotten the help we need, perhaps we'll be able to talk to our families of origin as a more healed adult, able to make the boundaries now that we were not allowed to make when we were little, whether it's from rigid faith or an unhealthy family structure. Right. And it can be ingrained from such a young age I know in the evangelical church I grew up in, we were taught that the words no and mine from a two-year-old were because they were a wicked sinner and not that they were just appropriate developmental behaviors when they discover that they're different beings from their parents and that these are just the first words to help them form the boundaries that they need and a sense of self. It's no wonder we all struggle so much with making healthy boundaries when we might not have even unpacked any of that yet. That's right. 
When you talk to Cindy about having grace and, you know, I think about that a lot when it comes to not only set, you know, ourselves, but setting boundaries with other people. And in my own head, I've kind of always come back to this idea of a pendulum. We've started out over here, right? A lot of us where we just have no boundaries and we are just, Mm -hmm. it's just a hot mess. And then at least for me on my journey and, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who feel the same way. They swing this way where they're like, screw everyone. Like no one's allowed in my, you know, in my inner Mm -hmm. circle. In my safe space. Right. And then they kind of woo and they swing. So for people, people who aren't watching this video, I'm doing this really awkward pendulum swing with my hands, but um, they really are kind of swinging back and forth into land in this happy medium that isn't perfect and isn't always stable, but it stays within these healthy bounds, if that makes sense. I get what you're saying, but I feel like, because if you think about the pendulum metaphor, then it feels like the happy medium is our goal and that Hmm. people should try to just head straight from this one extreme end right to the middle. But I just feel like because we were not raised with the power and agency to draw boundaries to begin with, we have to go to the other end of the extreme to first learn how to do that. It's almost like you have to do the one-on-one, then you get to <laughs> the right. part where you, you know your body uh, and you know how to respond to your body. I think we do have to reframe boundaries, not as things that keep people out, but as things that allow people in. Um because we're showing them, this is how you can love me in a way that I feel loved. And it's an invitation for people to love you. This is where my boundaries are. And if you can respect these boundaries, then we're going to have a really um, deep and intimate relationship that hopefully we both enjoy. I love that idea of inviting others to love us well. That's such a different take on boundaries. Yeah. I know you have two kids, right? I have two kids. So how does all of this play out for you, Cindy, personally with your own family? And feel free to talk as much or as little as you'd like about this. Speaking of boundaries, I have had to draw very strict boundaries between my work and my family life, Mm -hmm. especially because I talk about parenting. And, you know, I believe in the privacy of my family, (laughs) which they all It's so funny because I'm very public, but all three of them are extremely private. And so that's something I've had to learn to respect. And I think that it's true for all of us um, that our actual lives are much, much messier than the tweets and the parenting memes. It just is. And I think we have to accept that we can't even with a podcast, a longer form uh, medium, we can't capture the complexity of this experience. So yeah, with my kids, it's, I mean, as much as I can while respecting their privacy, I've shared everything that I talk about and teach. And it comes out of my own experience. I, this is the only life that I have. It comes out of my life of parenting and it's, it's what it looks like parenting while deconstructing for me has been moments where I've dumped my religious trauma on my kids, which I regret, but it's what happens, you know, where they come home talking about a Bible story that they found interesting. And I go into like a deconstruction diatribe, you know, over how that Bible story is not to be trusted. And and it's just way too much and way too soon. And that's, that's my religious trauma. 
right? And so we've had moments of that. And, and then I've had to backtrack and be like, oh, you know what? I have religious trauma. <laughs> Mom has religious trauma. This is what happened. Very sorry about that. <laughs> but then on the flip side, we have a good story, right? My husband and I, we both deconstructed. And so for our kids to realize that, oh, when we were young, the things that we did, the things that we believed in, that we were sinners, that we, <laughs> mom was supposed to submit to dad, like for them is so ludicrous. And <laughs> but it's so wonderful because it shows that we've changed and our kids don't even know that part of who we are. There's a part of me that feels sad. Like uh, sometimes I feel like they don't believe me. You know, I feel like, trust me, that's really what we believed. And so it's a little bit of a, uh, my friend, Laura Anderson from Religious Trauma Institute taught me the word relief, grief sandwich. So there's a part of you that's relieved. Oh, my kids are not exposed to this toxic religion. But then there's also the grief of that's a huge part of our lives that they don't even know about and that they are not a part of anymore, frankly. And um, so there's there's also grief. So deconstruction is very much a relief grief um, sandwich Throughout parenting, for those who are parenting while deconstructing, I'm sure you can relate to those conflicting emotions. <laughs> yeah. And I think even like you've been saying kind of all along, like even while you're not parenting, you know, I have days where I just wish I could go back to that time where I felt like God could kind of just fix everything in the way that I wanted to, if I prayed hard enough, or, you know, if I had enough people rallying around me, there's this sort of like illusion that you kind of live behind and then you come out of it. And it's just, it's so scary. It's a different, you have a different kind of safety net. And so the relief of, of coming out of that and the freedom that I've found as I've begun to deconstruct, there is all the, also this piece of me on the hard days that wishes I just didn't know better. It's coping mechanisms. Right. A lot of what we learned was coping mechanisms and, and coping mechanisms are necessary for survival. And so I think we've, yeah, we still feel that way when our kids are sick, right? We're like mm. back in, <laughs> back in the old days, we would just pray and ask as many people to pray as possible. And, and it's, you still kind of want that. It does, that need doesn't go away even if you've deconstructed, but unfortunately, yeah, it's also not possible for us to go back. You can't unknow what you know, right? The only thing that I think we can suspend belief, right? And sometimes I do find myself doing that. It's like, you know what, at this moment, I'm just going to choose. I'm, I'm just choosing to live in cognitive dissonance. I'm going to suspend my belief because I need this coping mechanism so badly. And I think we do this, right? Like I still take my eyelashes and blow on it and make wishes. And I know that that doesn't do anything, but I do it because it's because it makes me feel magical. It makes me feel powerful for that moment. So sometimes I think we suspend belief. That's a necessary and beautiful and it's not always a bad thing. That's just gorgeous. I love that you said that. I Honestly, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but, you know, it's true. There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong, I think, to going back to, like you said, th those sort of safe places that we've had for ourselves in the past. 
And I do find myself doing that at times. And this isn't linear, like growth isn't linear, right? We're human beings and we ha we're having experiences that are different every day. And, you know, we're all just sort of trying to survive and thrive. And the ways that That's we do right. that every day are, are different. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's that grace and that space for yourself to be what you need to be in the moment. What I've learned about religious trauma is that just kind of approaching deconstruction from a trauma-informed approach is really helpful because you'll hear people who say that, yeah, they go back to some of these old coping mechanisms and then other people are just really criticizing them and saying, how could you do that? That's wrong. That's toxic. And how can you go backwards? You got to move forwards, right? And you got to interpret that from a trauma-informed, like these people are traumatized. They've been traumatized by those prayers for the for their kids, right? And they're like, if you do that, then you are toxic. I think that that is a trauma response. And, and sometimes we have trauma responses as well, right? So I can't probably ever pray in the same way I did before because it's too triggering of my own religious trauma. That doesn't mean that it's going to trigger someone else in the same way. And so we have to kind of understand. So, so for, for some people, they like to reinterpret prayers, right? Just put a little bit of a spin on it so that it's, it still gives you that same comfort, but it doesn't trigger your religious trauma. And so I think that's why you have people who are reclaiming some of these labels, some of this vocabulary. For some, that works really well. But for others, it doesn't work because it triggers them way too much. Those same words. For, for instance, for me, I, I don't like using the word sin at all. I think sin is very triggering to me. And it's just so damaging. It's done so much damage in my life in my kids' life, in the lives of people around me that I don't want to reclaim it. But there are people who want to reclaim that word. They want to talk about the sin of racism, you know, the original sin. And for them, that's something, that's a, an avenue to moving forward um, and evolving in some ways. And so, but I think when I think about it in a trauma-informed lens, it makes sense to me why it works for some people and doesn't work for others because of the ways that our bodies respond to trauma differently. I love this idea of reclaiming. Esther and I are both a part of a book club with just some really, really wonderful people. And we've all sort of latched onto this idea of, you know, we all have big struggles. We're all human, you know, and we come together and we share vulnerably and we've really latched onto this idea of breathing for each other. Mm. It's like what you said, it's sort of reclaiming this idea of we're all sort of jumbled up about prayer and what that looks like and you know intercession and it, it gets so kind of wonky in our brains but this idea of breathing for someone and for me specifically someone who struggles with a panic disorder so struggles to breathe mm. at times yeah to be able to reach out to a friend of mine and to hear them say right now in this moment i am literally breathing alongside of you to me that is just the most beautiful thing that someone could do for me. I love that you talked about that specific thing, Liz. And I guess to reiterate your idea, Cindy, of reclaiming things that may have brought trauma in the past and then reframing them in a new way, breath prayers have definitely done that for me. And I can get all jumbled up inside about what it exactly means to pray, especially the more formulaic, like magical prayers of my past. But I can hold space within myself and for me with God 
in my very breath for the pain of others and reclaim the intimacy that praying for somebody used to provide for both of us. So granting myself the joy of breathing with and for myself and others has been such a lifeline for me in the last two years. And as Liz said, we have reclaimed that for ourselves in our book club. And it's so good to remind ourselves, like, why can't we? So thank you for reminding us that we have that permission. It's also a very good co-regulation strategy. If your child is throwing a tantrum, if you just hold them and breathe and say, you know, some people use a balloon thing, like blow out a balloon or blow a balloon. And that's breathing. It's, it's wonderful for regulating your body when you're having out of control emotions. Yeah. I think it can be really healing too in this, this way that we visualize or see, you know, God or Jesus or whatever that looks like for you. You know, I, I'm still sorting out my relationship with God, but Jesus to me is something I can kind of bridge that gap in that relationship. And so this idea of Jesus kind of standing behind me and holding me and breathing with me is just like such a tangible way for me to feel the presence of God in a way that's not triggering and is also comforting. So I just like, I love, I love all of that, but I do really want to talk about your book. I feel like we've hit so many points, but I want to know a little bit what got you to this place where you said, okay, like I need to write this book. This is something that people need to hear or they need to find a safe place in this area. Yeah. I mean, I just looked and didn't find any progressive Christian parenting books. All the Christian parenting books were sort of the Dobson style, fundamentalist, didn't treat children with justice, were not particularly socially progressive. So I jokingly call my book a social justice manual for parents Mm -hmm. because I I kind of hit kind of the major isms. I talk about the environment. I talk about racism, homophobia. And I'm like, this is a Christian parenting book that talks about these things. I felt like it was filling a need. Now, since I published my book, I feel like there's been quite a few, which is great. I think it's very much needed. But at the time when I wrote it, I just looked and didn't see it. (laughs) And how old were your kids when you... When I wrote that book? Yeah. Like preteen, maybe preteen ages. Yeah. Okay. It's funny because I I have really been struggling to find this sort of like idea of introducing Jesus to my four-year-old and kind of like what that looks like. And, you know, my dad has like a school age devotional kind of introduction to who Jesus is where he's really focusing on things that make Jesus loving and this Mm -hmm. amazing, you know, human being. And, but I feel like I've struggled to find that for younger kids. So it's just, it's just interesting to hear you say that as I'm sort of thinking through some of my own things where it's like, you know, we're always looking for somebody else to give us the answers or, you know, we're always looking for somebody else to have kind of a better idea than we do. But when something's missing, like, you can can create it, right? We can create it. We can create it, which is amazing. In fact, Um, when you were talking about the first thing that popped in my head, is like, why don't you tell your kid what you think who Jesus is? Right. That's really the best place to start. I talk about this. People want to know how to pass on their faith. I'm like, start with what you think, where you're at on your faith journey. 
I think people confuse sharing our faith with indoctrination and Mm. it's not the same, Mm. you know, indoctrination is saying you have to believe in this, this, and that, or you will go to hell. (laughs) 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 Now sharing your faith is very different. You're just literally sharing your story. You're telling your story of what you've gone through, what you believe, what you feel. And it's very fluid. I think it's important to keep it very fluid. You don't be afraid to change your mind. You know, I I think that we have to maintain that posture because not only because it's most true, it's the most true of our, all of our experiences, we all change, but also because it helps give our kids the permission to know that they don't have to believe the same thing they did, they believed yesterday, you know, they can change their minds. Um, I think that's very important for a spiritually healthy environment. Yeah, that's exactly what happened with my kids. They grew up with a very fundamentalist evangelical mom, and they've watched me turn to a place of curiosity and ultimately the unpacking of all of my faith. And I find it so beautiful because as my kids have watched me change and grow, it gives them permission to do the same. Mm -hmm. And then the most important is that all of us have been on a journey to discover like who we are and what we believe. And there's blanket permission on all the sides for that to be whatever it means. And you know what, that's why I love your book so much. I've kind of been devouring it the last couple of months. And what I see from it is the tools for us parents to nurture our children in a way that they can be completely themselves. That's right kids are the expert of themselves. There's, you know, parenting gurus are not the expert of your kid. Your kid is the expert of your kid. And just imagine if we had been raised that way, if we were taught that we were the expert of ourselves, then Liz, maybe you might not have been like, I need a book to help me know how to talk to my kids about Jesus. (laughs) You would have been like, you know what? I'm the expert of my relationship with Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Cindy. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, you can go to my group on Facebook. It's called Raising Children on Fundamentalist. And, but I'm kind of everywhere on Twitter and Instagram. And I also run a resource, support resource group for people who are parenting after religious trauma. And you can find all of that at cindywongbrandt.com. You are everywhere. And I don't know if it's just because I follow you everywhere, but I, 20 times a day, I feel like I see something from you. Oh, and that is like, just has been incredibly helpful for me on my own parenting and deconstruction journey. So thank you for just being vulnerable and willing to take this journey and bring us all alongside. And thank you so much for being on our podcast. We've just, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode on the deconstructing mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, estherjoygets.com and elizabethpetters.com, as well as our brand new website, deconstructingmamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your head.